Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 219, air date January 9th, 2018. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, I want to thank Robert and his lovely wife for uh, inviting me here. Uh, the food was phenomenal, so I want to thank again the, the people who put this together. Thank you. Uh, but I also want to thank everyone here. You know, um, I've, I've lived in Belmont since 1981 when I came here as a 17-year-old kid to go to school at MIT. So I'm very, very familiar with Belmont. My parents just don't own a, a home in Watertown. And I feel like among family, Armenians uh, are very family-oriented people. Everyone in this room either is first or second generation immigrants. Uh, a lot of hardworking people in this room who come from a very illustrious back, background of always wanting to contribute to this country. And you guys have uh, made massive contributions to this economy. So I, I'm very honored to be able to speak to you after living here for many years. Um, I don't want to take too much time, but I, my hope of this talk today is really perhaps to uh, inspire you a little bit about what the opportunity of America is and what it gave me and what I think the opportunities are and also to raise some questions. And I think, as Robert said, that the talk today is about the truth about innovation. Um, it may seem surprising that a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey invented email, but that is a fact. And that fact really compels us to really think about where does innovation come from. You know, we're thought to always believe that great innovation comes from big universities or the military or big corporations. And I'm here to share with you something which is really truly American, is that innovation really comes from uh, everyday people. The ecosystem for in innovation really is our, believe it or not, our mothers. Uh, there's women in here, which to me have been the greatest inspiration for innovation, as I share with you. But it comes from our teachers, our mentors, and really um, many people's names who we don't even know, everyday people. Because innovation is ultimately about solving a problem. It's not about inventing something in a lab, you know, being a mad scientist, it's about creating something and figuring out how to solve a problem and getting it out to people, right? That's the difference between an invention, which you sort of tinker with, and an innovation which you create, you uh, make, you sell, you bring other people together to deliver an actual solution. Um, today is an important day for me. I know as the, uh, as the uh, pastor shared, it's an important day in the, in, the, in the Christian religion. But yesterday was my mom's passing. It was her six years since she passed away, and she was an incredible woman. So uh, it's, it's, it's a great day for me because I, I have great memories of her. But, uh, you know, my mom came from an environment in India. Some of you may know India has a caste system. Anyone heard of that? Yeah. So, so we were considered the untouchables or the lower caste, or you know, the modern word you may have heard in media, the deplorables. Um, but uh, so the fact that my parents even came here was quite incredible. You won't find a lot of Indians like me. Uh, when, I used to, when I first came to America, many Indians wanted to know what my caste was, right? which was not part of the American ethos. So we came from an environment in India where we were considered the lower caste. My mom, uh, came from a broken family. Her father ran away from the family when they were very young. And as an eight-year-old, she had to figure out how to stand up on her own two feet. 
My mom ended up becoming the first woman to get her master's in statistics in India at a time when women weren't supposed to get educated at all, and she was from an environment where um, those kind of women were never supposed to get educated. And so my parents came here in 1970. Uh, if you think about 1970, this very traditional Indian family leaving India, I remember landing at Kennedy Airport. I was wearing shorts on December, and it was snowing, just like today. We never seen snow. Uh, but my parents were incredible people. We, I went through the public school systems in New Jersey. Uh, we first came to Patterson. Anyone been to Patterson? Yeah. So Patterson was a predominantly African-American, a very poor town, but this Indian family came from India in, in 1970, it was the era of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So think about this very conservative Indian family <laughs> landing in New Jersey with hippies, and it was a wild environment, bell bottoms, etc. But my family in seven years worked very hard. There wasn't school choice in those days, but we moved in those seven years into four different school systems because that's the way you got, Indians are very much like Armenians into the education. So we moved to Clifton, which is a little better public school system than to Persephone, and then Livingston, predominantly Jewish, so very, very good school system. Um, Having come from India, I could see the stark difference between America and India. So I was very motivated to succeed because I knew that what I had here was enormous and I knew how much my parents had suffered to come here. So by the time I was 14, I'd finished up calculus in the ninth grade. My high school didn't have any more courses to offer me. And uh, my dear mom had read this little article, I think in a New York newspaper said that 40 kids were gonna get selected to go to New York University and study computer science. This was in 1970 when a computer would probably fill the half of this room. Um, today, the average computer has, you know, uh, the average iPhone has more computing power than any of those computers, right? So I was one of those 40 students selected and my mom would drop me off at 5 a.m. at Newark Penn Station and I would take, thank you, I would take the, take the uh, training to New York. Most parents are afraid to let their kids walk down the street these days. So this young 14-year-old kid would go into uh, NYU, and I took uh, seven programming languages, graduated top of the class. It was like a military-like program where we were uh, a, a, a professor who was thinking 30 years ahead because he knew the United States would need software engineers. So when I finished that, I had some more courses to finish up at high school. Um, so, but I didn't have any more math courses. So again, my mom was very, very uh, entrepreneurial. She introduced me to a professor uh, who was working in the center of Newark at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School. And he saw in me something and he said, you know, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to work here full time. So my school changed the rules so this young kid could travel 30 miles into the heart of Newark and work full time. Now, who made that happen? It was another woman. It was a independent study school teacher. She fought with the school system and she changed the rules so I could leave high school in the middle, think about that, and travel to Newark and work full time. So what was I challenged to do? Now, anyone over the age of 40, I know there's a lot of young people here, but anyone over the age of 40 will remember uh, there was a system of communication that most organizations had in the 1970s. It was called the inner office mail system. Everyone remember this? If you don't remember it, I'll remind you of it. 
Um, when you went into this medical school, every office always had a secretary. Uh, so it was pretty much male dominated. So uh, always a woman. And on the secretary's desk, which was, by the way, a physical desktop, there was a thing called a desktop, which was physical. And on that desktop was an inbox, an outbox. Behind the secretary was a bunch of file folders. Underneath her desk was a trash can. On her desk was paper clips. And she had this thing called a typewriter. Remember this? She'd put paper in it, and she would write a thing called a memo to, from, subject. Sometimes she'd put carbon paper to create a thing called a carbon copy. If she had to do 10 carbon copies, she'd be typing away the whole day because she had to put a piece of paper, carbon paper, another one, right? Yeah. You remember this? Yeah. And then once she wrote this memo, sometimes she would attach something with a paper clip, put it in an envelope, string it, and she'd put it in these pneumatic tubes which sent it out through the hospital. This is how, this was the inner office mail system. This is how you hired someone. This is how you wrote research grants. That was called the inner office mail system. No one had ever put that in electronic form. In those days, computers could do simple text messaging. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that entire system. And I was given this challenge to convert that entire system into the electronic version. I wrote 50,000 lines of code, working until 2 a.m., 14-year-old kid. And I called this system email. The reason I called it email was the Fortran language only allowed six characters for variable naming, and the, operating and the operating systems those days could only be five characters. It was not an obvious term. No one had ever used that term in the English language. So I created the system with all these features, and I called it email, all right? It gets even more interesting when I came, so, in fact, I won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards, and when I came to MIT 1981 on the front page of MIT, they talked about three very interesting students who was entering the freshman class of 1,041 kids. And I was one of them. You know, this kid had invented this electronic mail system. But you got to understand, Indians are brought up to be very humble. And I looked at it and I said, oh, interesting. And I moved on. Uh, I went to the president of MIT's home for dinner that fall. Uh, I'm sorry, Christmas. And uh, he said, you know, it's unfortunate the Supreme Court doesn't let you patent software. So you gotta understand, the politicians in Congress had no idea what software meant. They thought it was you were writing something. They didn't understand it was a creation. So, so in 1980, which I didn't know, the Copyright Act of 1976, so copyright lets you protect like a, a novel, right? It lets you protect a musical script or a piece of music. No one knew what software was, but in 1980, Congress had amended the Copyright Act of 1976 to allow you to protect software using copyright. And the act was called the Computer Act of 1980. Now, I didn't know this, right? My parents weren't lawyers, any of this. But, but the president of MIT at his home, he said, you know what? You should actually copyright this. So I wrote away, no PDFs, no internet. You had to write away. You got the copyright forms, filled them in. And it wasn't a simple thing of just putting a C with a circle. You had to submit all your computer code, went back and forth, and on August 30th, 1982, this 17, 18-year-old kid was issued the first US copyright for email, recognizing me as the official inventor of email. So not only did I call it email, wrote the computer code, but also got copyright. So those are the facts. So I know Robert said people were wondering, oh, this guy's claiming he invented email. I'm not, a, it's not no claim. 
I did invent email. It's not the Al Gore. It's the Shiva Okay, because people get confused. Anyway, I forgot about that. It wasn't my intention to get credit for email. The real thing I was very interested in was medicine. And why is that? You see, when I grew up in India, I didn't tell you, my grandmother was a farmer. You know, today I think President Trump is speaking to the Farmers Bureau. My uh, grandmother was a poor farmer. She used to work 16 hours planting rice, getting leeches on her feet. And I, half a third of my life was spent in a small village. But my grandmother had an interesting ability. She, could, she was trained in uh, traditional forms of Indian medicine. You see, besides Western medicine, we forget there is 5,000 year olds worth of Chinese medicine, Indian medicine, I'm sure Armenian medicine, that goes on for thousands of years. Um, but my grandmother could observe your face, diagnose it, predict different uh, issues in your body, and, and she would come up with particular herbs for you. So this is not uh, some witchcraft, but it was based on a traditional system of Indian medicine. So I was actually very motivated to find out why my grandmother could do this. That's why I was interested in working in that medical school. All right? So when I came to MIT, I was really interested in medicine, uh, but I found the way that we treated the human body was not as a system, we treated it as parts. So anyway, I never fully pursued medicine, but I pursued engineering, because engineering, you have to look at the whole. So I ended up doing a degree in electrical engineering, went out, uh, was a founding engineer at a company, which we then sold to Lotus, one of the early graphics packages. Came back to MIT, did two masters, one in uh, mechanical engineering and another one in design at the Media Lab. And then I went and left MIT because I had my second life with email. Some of you may remember 1993 is when the World Wide Web came. You remember this? Mm -hmm. The internet had existed since the 60s, yeah. but the web was a UI which let you point and click. So what happened as a result was that email was used in the office environment between 78 to 93, right? No one really knew about email until 1993. But when the web came, you had companies like Hotmail, right? Yahoo. They literally put a web interface on what I created. And then email became webmail. And then you saw the explosive use of email because email went from a business application to a consumer application. Well, the president of the United States started, this was Clinton at the time, was getting a lot of inbound emails at the White House, 93. The White House runs a contest to see if you can automatically analyze email, because otherwise we would have had to hire all these people. The way Clinton was handling email was when an email came in, they'd have an intern, probably shouldn't use the word intern with Clinton, but <laughs> they'd have an intern read an email and categorize it into 147 buckets, and they'd send out a form letter. So the White House was looking for AI technologies to automatically do this. I was at MIT at the time doing my PhD. Uh, long story short, I ended up, uh, ended up uh, winning that competition, and I uh, started a company called EchoMail, where we would receive emails from companies, automatically analyze them, and lower the cost of managing emails. We built that to about our $250 million worth company. And uh, when that ended, I came back to MIT uh, and something fascinating was going on in medicine. Um, the genome project that ended in 2003, you may remember this, we tried to sequence our genome, yeah. and we thought what made us different than a worm was the number of genes. We thought we must have like a half a million genes. We knew a worm only had 20,000 genes. Well, it turns out in uh, 2003, what they found out was after 10 years of the genome project, we only have 20,000 genes. Okay, it's fascinating. 
So, so a worm has 20,000 genes, we have 20,000 genes. So what makes us different than a worm is not the number of genes. It's the chemical reactions that those genes create from all the proteins. So anyway, that created a new field called systems biology. And one of the big challenges was, could we mathematically model the human cell? So I came back and I said, this is cool. This is medicine using computers. And I ended up spending five years at MIT creating a new technology called Cytosol. Uh, Cytosol, and what Cytosol is, is a technology for uh, uh, mathematically modeling all different kinds of diseases on the computer. Now why is this important? Well today we spend nearly $5 billion, 13 years to create one drug, which has many side effects. Because we're sort of guessing. It's a very medieval way of creating drugs. This is why the cost of healthcare is so high. No one talks about this. Because the way that we do drug development is like we were doing it, like we were building airplanes 100 years ago. So anyway, Cytosol is radically changing that. And we've, uh, for example, been able to discover a drug for pancreatic cancer in a record 11 months, got an allowance by the FDA, and we're going after every major disease now. I'm sharing this with you because this is what I was doing, you know? And then something interesting occurred around 2012. My mom passes away. Um, and when she passed away, a few months before she passed away, in a suitcase, she had left all those beautiful artifacts from 1978. You know, the copyright notice, all the computer code, everything, which I had completely forgotten about. And um, a friend of mine said, Shiva, you invented email. Why didn't you talk about this? And I said, David, that, that's really not my interest. I've already done these other things. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, you got to let the world know you did this. So he invited the senior editor of Time magazine to review this, Doug Ameth. And Doug was the first journalist to go through all of these artifacts, which very few people had seen. The computer code, the, uh, you know, the programming, all my notes. And he wrote an article on, in November 2011 called The Man Who Invented Email. Three months later, uh, the Smithsonian contacted me and they wanted access to all this. They said, you know, this is a treasure trove of artifacts. Uh, on February 16, 2012, it went into the Smithsonian, which should have been a great occasion for celebration, right? It's, it's, the, it's the American dream, right? Kid coming from India with nothing, grows to MIT, the inventor of email. But something fascinating occurred. The instant it went into the Smithsonian, uh, it was like a new skull had been found in Africa. And it reset the origin of human innovation or something. Because remember, I never promoted this. Never really wanted to make money off of it because you can't make money off copyright. A young Washington Post reporter wrote a great article saying, Dr. Shiva is very honored as the inventor of email. The next day, what you see happening is this huge vitriol, anger, people calling me this curry stain Indian should be beaten in hand. He's lying. He's a fraud. Incredible. And some of the controversy you guys may have heard on the internet. But what gets fascinating is overnight a guy with four degrees at MIT, Fulbright scholar, who's won every major award, who's on the front page of MIT for many things, is destroyed in the media. Fascinating, isn't it? And you find out as you unravel this who's behind this. Well, you find out, you see the narrative for far too long has been that you must go to MIT or Stanford or Harvard and then you're a great innovator, right? You surely, a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey, could never have invented email. That doesn't compute, no pun intended for some people. But when we really look at American innovation, 
Most of it has come from everyday people. That's what makes this country great. Philo Farnsworth, a 14-year-old farm boy in Franklin, Idaho, you can look it up, invented TV. He put it together, very much like me, he had a good mentor, a good family, and it wasn't done at RCA. RCA, in fact, stole his invention and destroyed him in the court system until the 19th year that he won. He died, he died an alcoholic, by the way. But now, 60 years later, there's a statue of him, of him in the halls of Congress. So why am I sharing this with you? You see, I've had the fortune to be on both sides. I've been at MIT, and I've created things, gotten a lot of fame out of that, made money, but I've also been in Newark, New Jersey where email was invented. And what I'm here to tell you is that the truth about innovation is yes, it can occur at MIT, and I'm very fortunate to have gone there. But the reality is there's a lot of smart people in this country. And they're not just at MIT or Harvard or the big institutions, they're everywhere, right? They're all of you in this room. That's what makes this country phenomenal, that we have that ability to take an idea and take it out there. In it, that's innovation. So the truth about innovation is innovation can occur anytime, any place, by anybody. And we can never forget that. And that 14-year-old boy invented email or invented TV, that's what they tell us. And my struggle to fight that, in fact, Gawker Media, some of you may have known, heard about them, they, they put an awful video about Hulk Hogan out there, Hulk Hogan sued. After four years of trying to get a lawyer, to defend this, we finally got one uh, last year. We fought Gawker Media. They were forced to take down the three defamatory articles, and I won about a million dollar settlement against Gawker. So the issue is, you know, we keep thinking when technology comes, the world gets more freer, right? More media, it gets freer. Right when the Gutenberg Press came, we're gonna be able to all publish. The reality is we created four major publishing houses. And as the inventor of email, what I can tell you is just because there's technology doesn't mean we're going to get freedom. Because what we stand on right now is two companies, Google and Facebook, actually control all the media that we receive. And we got to think about that. Yes, the internet lets us publish, but if Google and Facebook do not want you on there, you're gone, you're deleted. You do not exist in their index, you won't exist. So I'm, I'm here to tell you that you know, as Robert said, I'm running for U.S. Senate, and it's, why is this guy running for U.S. Senate? He's sitting on a multi-billion dollar company, he's an inventor scientist. The reason I'm running is because I love this country, and I think that we need to have everyday people like us participate in government. Not the career politicians, not the lawyer lobbyists like Elizabeth Warren, sorry if you like her, but everyday people who actually create and produce things. And that's why I'm running for that. It's an extension of my aspect of being an innovator. So I hope to serve the, the, uh, Massachusetts and it'd be an honor. I know my mom looking down will be very proud of me. But in closing, what I want to say is that everyone here is a powerful human being. We all have the ability to create and innovate, as all of you have shown. And again, in, 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 in you know, repeating this, the fact is innovation can occur anytime, any place, by anybody. Thank you.
any questions? Yeah. With the subject of net neutrality coming up and the power of Google and Facebook, how do you feel that that'll unfold so that we'll have freedom? Yeah, it's a great question. So the question is net neutrality. Everyone heard this? Okay. So when you really think about net neutrality, I want to give you a different way of looking at it. So the simple way, it took me a while to figure this out because they make it very complicated. Here's a simple way to think about it. Here is you, the consumer of information, okay? And over here is a producer of information, right? Like someone owning a website and they're publishing something or you own your own YouTube channel. So here's a creator of information and here's a consumer of information. Between the consumer and the creator are middlemen. Who are those middlemen? Well, one group is the telecommunications companies like AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, who actually own the physical pipes. You following me? Now, but there's another set of people also who control the communication, Google and Facebook. In the old days, I used to be able to build a website and distribute it to you by marketing it. Over the last 10 years when Google and Facebook came, if Google as a search engine decides to not put you in their index, you're gone. And what's happened is Facebook has aggregated so much content that if you have your website, you need to go through them, ultimately get it marketed. So when you look at these middlemen, it's not only the telecommunication companies, but it's also Google and Facebook. You got it? When net neutrality came, uh, everyone said, oh, these telecommunication companies, they're going to choke what information you can see. But the people who made up net neutrality, if you actually follow the thread, they're actually in the camp of Google and Facebook, right? So what's fascinating about people in power is sort of two heads. One, one side is one side of the power and the other side controls the other side of the power. But these guys will sometimes create arguments and debates so we forget the other side. So all the focus the last like six months has been, oh, the telecommunications companies are horrible. But those companies are supporting those telecom companies forgot that Google and Facebook are probably the biggest violators of net neutrality. So here's my solution to that. I believe Google and Facebook need to be busted up to be made public utilities, number one. Second solution is we need to go to mesh networks. So ultimately, the piping system, as long as it's owned, by these big telcos, we won't really have freedom. But there is new technology called WiMAX or mesh networks where literally, if you put one of these routers on top of your home and all of us did it, we could create what's called a public network. It's owned by the people for the people, independent of the telcos. And my other idea is the best people to do this is the US Postal Service. Let me tell you why, when the Postal Service was started by people like Franklin, the goal was I could send you a letter, if you go look at the vision of it, and no one would interfere with that. It was about freedom of communication. It was the First Amendment in many ways, right? It was, so if I sent you a letter and someone intervened in it, even within the Postal Service, 20 year sentence in prison. When email came and overtook postal volume in 1997, what happened was private companies now control that communication. So in many ways we gave up our freedom for quote-unquote free email. I've talked to the Postal Service about it, but they're a dinosaur of an organization. They don't get it. But the reality is the Postal Service may be the home to resuscitate that that can really help us with, uh, what, forget net neutrality, it's a nonsensical term. I think it's really a citizen's network. Net neutrality was started by a bunch of academics. 
were on the side of Google and Facebook as a way to shield uh, shield them away from the telehealth. I, I like that. That it pumps through life into the post office. Exactly. Yep. It, it, I think people in this room probably pay 10 bucks a year if they knew that their email was going to be protected. Because the issue is not only security, but if someone does interfere with your email, that it has a 20-year sentence in prison. Yep. yep. You want to just repeat the question? You want to stand up? Yeah, so the question is, why do we think we can find a cure for Alzheimer's when Pfizer hasn't been able to? Look, if you talk to any of the major CEOs at most of these large pharmaceutical companies, they will tell you in confidence that their companies are going to go under over the next five to ten years. These companies are dinosaurs. Uh, it's like they're operating in a vacuum. The methodology that they use to create drugs is like the methodology we used to create airplanes 100 years ago. Remember when they used to just throw a pilot in, and if he failed, you said, gee whiz, he died, right? That's how we used to create airplanes. We didn't use, today, every airplane is built on a computer, right? It's modeled using tools like SolidWorks. You model it, you do wind tunnel testing, but you rarely just throw a pilot in like they did you know, in the old times. The way we create drugs today is created on an old model. You find some compound in the university, you fund it $40 million, you, you throw a bunch of in vitro testing, kill a bunch of animals, and you hope and pray after five years you get something, and then you go through clinical trials. And those clinical trials are done in countries like Thailand or Africa, thinking that those genetics are gonna work back here. It's a completely retarded model, excuse my language. Okay? What we're saying is in the world of the digital world, where we can now look at science, use a computer to actually model the mechanisms, we could shorten that. We've done that with this multi-combination therapeutic we discovered pancreatic cancer. What I'm saying is we're on the verge of a disruption to the pharmaceutical industry. So companies like Pfizer, Sanofi, all these guys, they're just on an old locomotive train, and they don't care to change it because they're making trillions doing that in the old way. It's the new companies which are gonna come and disrupt them. In fact, Pfizer knows in their old model they can't do it, so they spun out a separate innovation center. And you can talk to people who work there, how successful they are. They're not that successful. So I'm saying uh, the old guard uh, is not gonna do that well because they're, they're using like an old Model T and you have a whole different engine that's being developed. That's what we're doing. <coughs> Sure. What's your opinion about the Bitcoin phenomenon? Yeah, so the question is, what is my opinion on Bitcoin? Okay? Uh, so look, the under, so the, 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 I'm not going to make predictions on Bitcoin, but I can tell you the underlying technology to Bitcoin is called blockchains. And that technology I'm very, very bullish on because it helps us start creating new systems of transactions and maneuvers that can literally uh, break down the middlemen. Lot of the, the hope of the internet was that you as a creator could reach your consumer with no middlemen. And that's what blockchain allows us to do. And in fact, make sure that you don't have companies like Uber, I mean, like uh, Google and Facebook coming. So I'm very bullish on blockchain because I think it's a whole new way. Uh, anyone 
want to learn technology, go start reading up on blockchain. Because I think, just like the internet, the web came in 1993, blockchain's going to transform everything. Yep. Basically, what he's asking is, um, people have, everyone has a certain genotype here, but the way your genes express is called your phenotype, right? So you may have the genes for blue eyes, and you may have the genes for blue eyes, but it's possible you don't get blue eyes, you get brown eyes, okay? This at a high level. So the issue is how do you actually mathematically model that? You used a term called machine learning. So just to keep it simply, there are two ways to model things in the physical world. I'm, I'm gonna, in the interest of time, I'll keep it simple. One way is you literally input something into something and you observe the output and you do what's called statistics, like people predict the stock market. That's in the world of machine learning. The other world is where you actually understand when you put that input in, how it leads to the output. That's called mechanistic understanding. The problem is statistic is a good way to solve certain types of problem, but not in biology. You need to understand mechanisms. The technology we've created helps you understand large-scale mechanisms. People stay away from mechanisms because it's too complicated. That's the code that we cracked. The technology we created, Cytosol, if email was the electronic version of the inner office mail system, Cytosol is the electronic version of the molecular communication system. I can talk to you offline more. But mechanistic understanding is what's needed in biology, not statistical understanding. Like IBM's Watson, it's cool, but it's never gonna be able to solve mechanisms. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, so mechanism, sodium plus chloride always gives sodium chloride, right? That's a mechanism. The issue is many of those mechanisms are being discovered in siloed worlds in the literature. What we do is we have a way of aggregating, integrating that, and, and, and doing that process. I, I can talk to you more offline. You do need a certain amount of supervised learning, but once you get a mechanism down, you don't have to go back to, to it again. One more? Yeah, so the question is, how long is it gonna take before we can cure pancreatic cancer? Um, so, first of all, one of the ways to get to cures is to understand mechanisms of what's going on, the mechanistic understanding. What we've done over the last three years now is we were the first to literally look at the known science, extract that and understand the mechanistic understanding. And now with MD Anderson, we're actually taking that mechanistic understanding to a whole nother level. So the first step is we need to understand the mechanisms as best we can. The second level is to recognize that you don't solve problems like cancer with a single drug. Um, and everyone here's genetics are different. So if you use combination therapy, 
It can't be a single drug, because if you just give one drug a lot of it, you create a lot of toxicity. That's why it's better to give small dosages of smaller drugs. That's why in traditional cultures like India, they created something called curry. Curry is actually a spice of many little uh, uh, herbs. Cardamom, turmeric, I hate to use this analogy, but it's true. And by the way, if you read the newspaper a couple of uh, weeks ago, a woman cured herself off cancer by doing high dosage of curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric, which is the active ingredient in curry. Turmeric is known. So my point is, the way we're going to come to a solution is understanding mechanisms, which is what we're doing, and understanding combinations of potentially a lot of nutraceutical drugs without using these harsh chemicals. Compounds that our body has known for 10,000 years, not something that's new over the last you know, two years. So that's the path that we're on. And my prediction is, for things like pancreatic cancer, we're going to, we're going to see some significant solutions in the next five years. Yep. It, it sounds like what? No, actually, it should be less expensive. Look, the reason the cost of drugs is so much, let me tell you a simple for, formula here. What is the life of a patent? Everyone know? 20 years. Okay? So if you're a guy over at MIT and you think something is doing something in a test tube, okay, you file a patent that instant. Okay, then you have to raise your first round of venture money. Then you go through five years of preclinical testing. And then if you go through another, let's say another 10 years of clinical, I'm, I'm, let's use a number, broad number, 15 years. Well, how many years do you have left of your patent? Five years. So if you put $5 billion into creating your drug, you only have five years of patent life. And let's say the population is around a million people, you're gonna have to sell your drug for, what, $50,000 or 500,000, whatever the zero is, you follow? So the cost of R&D in creating a drug and the cost of you recouping your costs is what's making the cost of drugs high. My goal is we want to reduce that by using modern technology. So the cost of drug development is going to come through innovation. And it's going to come through doing things very, very differently. And my view is combining Eastern and Western medicine. It's not just going to come through Western medicine. Western medicine, I think I was talking